I think ultimately why we like the machine shop space is we think it represents more of an intellectual challenge than a lot of those other types of venues. Manufacturing companies are complicated to run. There's lots of components to them that you have to get right. And it's something where you have to be obsessive about continuous process improvement, I think, to survive. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Sam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. One of the fun things about this podcast is I get to talk to such a wide range of people of such diverse backgrounds. Today, our guests are from Precision Additive, which is in the greater Denver area. Brothers Brian and Jason Korbelik started the shop earlier this year. They come from a manufacturing family, but neither had been directly employed in manufacturing before. Sensing an opportunity to bring precision additive manufacturing, or as it is sometimes commonly known, 3D printing, to the Rocky Mountains, they have taken the plunge. So we're going to explore thoughts behind starting a business, challenges they're facing, how they think differently than someone coming directly from additive manufacturing, and even answer some questions they have regarding redundancy, generating leads, expedite markups, and equipment strategy. Plus, we're going to get an update on additive equipment technology as it exists today because these guys went through a pretty thorough process and figuring out what made sense for their shop. So let's do it. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Brian and Jason. Thank you, Jay. We're excited to be here. Yeah. yeah. Big fan of the show and uh, excited to talk to you today. Well, we're, we're psyched to have you here. And I was doing my homework. On LinkedIn, I found that both of you guys went to Middlebury College. So that is a top-notch college, tough school to get into, but in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, cold winters, and it's a liberal arts college. So maybe you could just tell me about Middlebury, but I'm curious how it set up a good foundation for you to become business owners. Yeah, that's a great question. We grew up in the middle of Kansas around a small manufacturing business. And when it came time to go to school, you know, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to, you know, either go out to the University of Colorado so I can spend some time skiing. My dad had gone there or, you know, maybe the University of Kansas or something. And I played football in, in high school and ended up playing some in college as well, but got a letter from an Ivy League school. And ultimately one thing led to another and wasn't good enough to play for the Ivy League, but good enough to play in the smaller NSCAC. So I wound up there and uh, Brian came a year after me. It, it was great. I think, you know, had a pure play liberal arts education. You know, I was an American studies major. So really not a lot that I've done 
vocationally uh, school on. But I, I think what it did do was helped provide a solid foundation for, I think, strategic thinking and con- considering different perspectives. And uh, I think just, just trying to be strategic in our, our day-to-day occupations. And so, you know, I think it's also inspired us to be students. We're try to go into this, you know, being humble. We don't have experience in the job shop arena. So I think it's also taught us to just be good students and learn from people like yourself that have deep expertise in areas that we don't know. And, you know, quite frankly, that's why I've been, why paperless parts has been so invaluable to us in a variety of ways. Well, let's just jump into then starting up a business where you've never been in the job shop business before. What led you to want to get into manufacturing, number one, and then have it be additive? Well, we grew up in a a manufacturing family. Our grandfather and father ran a really successful pneumatic conveying equipment company in Kansas. And we worked there in the summers testing materials and the laboratory on the equipment and also in the sales department and some of the customer service department. And through that experience, we saw a lot what it took to grow a successful OEM or manufacturing business and how to treat your employees really well. My grandfather was known to do a type of management called uh, management by walking around. And uh, he visited with all the employees. They had more than a hundred employees on a regular basis and knew, you know, their, the, not just their names and background, but also their kids' names, their families, and always took an interest in them. And we saw them really grow a, a business in a really neat way and a consistent, stable growth pattern over a number of years. And Jason worked for a long time after college in the LED lighting manufacturing industry for a really successful startup that was bought by General Electric. And then he, he worked for General Electric for a long time and, and also another lighting manufacturer most recently in Boston. And I worked in the career development area where I worked for a leadership development and coaching industry and saw a lot of the importance in, in HR and, and how to take care of your employees and customers well. But recently, we both really wanted to go into business together. And we were looking at machine shops or contract manufacturers because we really like the upstream nature of that market and how you have the chance to really make parts and components that really, really help drive American manufacturing. And we're really passionate about American manufacturing and keeping that here, here in the United States and empowering the job force and manufacturing, as well as automation technologies for manufacturing, really making sure American manufacturing stays at the forefront. So we were looking at machine shops in the Denver area, and there was uh, one particularly that was available but it just wasn't at the right kind of price point for us at that time. And while we were researching it, we saw so much potential in the additive manufacturing market. So if I could just jump in, you started out thinking you're going to buy a machine shop. Why machining? Did you look at, say, injection molding or some other type of shop or processes? Yeah, I mean, we cast a pretty wide net. I had spent the last four years working for a small lighting manufacturer out in Rhode Island for a, a guy who, you know, ultimately became my greatest mentor. And what he had bought that business probably two or three years before I had been there, you know, highly levered situation. I'd gone in, and, you know, and it grew the business significantly, but I kind of took a lot of advice from him and we decided to cast a wide net, even though at the heart of it, we wanted a machine shop, I think. Well, yeah. yeah when you say you cast a wide net, I'm a listener and I want to buy mm-hmm. a business as opposed to just start it from ground zero. How do you cast a wide net? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a lot of business development. You know, we decided to target industrial companies that were generating basically anything 20 million in sales and under, even though some of those in terms of earnings were going to be past our price range. And mm-hmm. we did direct marketing to business owners. So wow. well, it was just effective in being able to tell our story and what we wanted to do with it. I think also differentiated us from private equity buyers that we found a lot of these shops to be um, a little hesitant about engaging for obvious reasons. And 
ultimately we, yeah, I mean, we looked at, you know, plastics, businesses, uh, everything from thermoforming and then, you know, and then machining, of course, looked at industrial distribution businesses. I think ultimately why we like the machine shop space is it's, we think it represents more of an intellectual challenge than a lot of those other types of venues. Manufacturing companies are complicated to run. There's lots of components to them that you have to get right. And it's something where you have to be obsessive about continuous process improvement, I think, to survive. So I think the challenge of the machine shop versus some of those uh, other smaller industrial trades was uh, really appealing. And also it was a way for us to try to contribute to bringing more stateside manufacturing back to this country and making ourselves less vulnerable as a country and just doing our our small part, obviously, to help that. So when you were casting your wide net, did you still have full-time jobs? No, we've uh, just been very lucky in our lives. My wife and I moved back here from Massachusetts. My wife's a um, a clinical director for a large psychology program in the state. It's, you know, I'm I'm lucky to, you know, I've also grown up in a well-to-do family. And so we had flexibility to go out and devote hundred percent of our time to that. And that undoubtedly makes a big difference because I can't imagine have had a, have had a full-time job and just also just juggling things like, you know, Jonathan Friedel and some of these guys that you've had on have had to. So I don't think we're a very inspiring story in that regard. But this is good because it tells how long it takes to do something. You started Precision Additive in April of this year, 2021. When did you leave your full-time job? I guess both of you, if it was the same time. And essentially, how long did this whole process take before you actually were up and running in a business? Jason and I started talking about doing something of this nature in the summer of 2020, around August or so. Uh, He was moving back to Denver in July. And I was leaving my job around August of last year. And so we started talking about it and doing research and development from about September. And then we formed an LLC and at the beginning of 2021, I think it was the very beginning of January. And then that LLC is actually called Summit Industry Partners LLC. And that was the LLC we formed to actually buy a, a business that existed and then, yeah, as the year went on, we started, that was when we, you know, worked, we approached that, the one machine shop and did some due diligence on it that we were focusing on possibly buying, but mm-hmm. down the due diligence process, it didn't really pan out the way we wanted it to. The, the value that the owner wanted for the business was just not something we could do. You know, so we did a lot of talking around February and March. We'd already been researching additive manufacturing for, for quite a while. And Jason was around 3D printing for prototyping in his previous career for the past five years mm-hmm. or so. But finally, we decided that we wanted to start our own business. And, and we thought additive was a really good place to step into the manufacturing market with all of its emerging technologies and so forth. So it's the whole process to get to where we've been now has been about, about a year. We launched Precision Additive in April or really started the business officially, but we didn't launch our website until the beginning of June uh, of this year. So we've had like, you know, to get all the way to this point, we're about almost three months into being like fully operational. It's been about a, about a year. You touched upon it a little bit with additive, but you, you could have gone down the machine shop path, but really why, why additive? Where do you see yeah. that, that that's where you wanted to put that stake in the ground? I was fortunate to work for, you know, I think as you're aware of, I don't think not all small business owners are created equally, especially ones in, in older generations that the technology is new and all that stuff. And I got work at a company called Vantage Lighting in Rhode Island, and that's run by just a very smart, successful businessman and mentor of mine that was obsessed with equipping the business with technology to help increase competitiveness versus big conglomerates in commercial and architectural lighting. And so one of those strategies that he wanted to employ was rapid prototyping and 3D printing of reflectors for architectural downlighting because we were just not keeping pace in terms of new product introductions in the market. And 
I saw very quickly the value that that could have on a product development team. And it just intrigued me. I was just spending time back there just looking at printers and getting lost. And I'm like, this is amazing. You know, it's like, forget, maybe it's like a Star Trek episode where it like basically prints a full cup of coffee. And so you're like, okay, this is, you know, getting closer to that. So we looked here and, you know, where we think additive has a really compelling story right now is in the assistance of traditional manufacturing processes like CNC milling, for instance. So you can drive a lot of efficient cost efficiencies labor efficiencies, all sorts of things through, for instance, printing uh, robust parts on a composite-based printer for uh, machining versus tying up your machines and machining metal or whatever that might be. And so we were just knowing what we did and having some exposure to Mark Forge out in Boston when I lived out there. It was just, it was surprising to me that in these job shops we looked at that some of that stuff wasn't being thought about. It was, you know, one conversation was, Oh yeah, well, I've seen the guy that bought, you know, four metal printers in town and they're all just sitting there. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just uh, making your operations more efficient and contributing to your subtractive environment. And so I think that's how we got into the additive thing. And then also why we chose to partner with Mark Forge for a lot of our FDM needs, because we're able to continuously reinforce parts with continuous strands of carbon fiber, Kevlar, high temperature, high strength fiberglass to even more economical options like fiberglass that are pretty robust. And so, you know, that was kind of the direction we took. I would also just add to that, we saw a huge potential for the rapid prototyping market with 3D printing and especially being able to print the parts with more complex geometries than can typically be machined. And so we're also in Colorado where there's a, a fair amount of prototyping, especially for the aerospace industry. And so we really wanted to be able to approach and capture that market as much as possible. And then also be able to offer those parts in a small to mid-batch production capacity as well. We're going to really dive in. I've got a bunch more questions on additive and what you're doing. But before we do that, I don't want to leave the starting of the business and I got some other questions there. So you, you started the business, what surprised you? Might not have thought of everything. I, don't know. I think, you know, I don't know that it was really a surprise just because Jason and I both have long careers trying to help develop other companies in, in leadership roles. We knew it would be a lot of work so to speak, and, and a lot of learning, a lot of learning. So, I, but I think the unique thing that has uh, been really challenging and at the same time, extremely rewarding is just wearing all the different hats you have to wear as a startup company and as small business owners, where you don't have an employee force yet, and you don't have different departments that handle different tasks. So, you know, doing all the accounting, the marketing, the research and development for what processes and materials you want to invest in, doing all the business development and lead generation. It's just, it's, it's really, for me, I've always loved in my career having kind of a open platform each day where I can have many different possible tasks I can do, but I need to be able to be good at choosing and distinguishing between which tasks need to be done now and which ones can wait or what's the highest priority. And so honestly, it's been a lot of hard work and a lot of fun determining where I need to put my attention next. And I think I'm sure Jason feels the same way, but there's just so many details that you don't see when you're an employee of a company versus an owner. For me personally, I think I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit and I've really been waiting for this opportunity to do this kind of thing where you really get a chance to lead what you're going to focus on each day. And it's your choice. It's, it's nobody else's choice, but it's, it's your choice. And a huge amount of responsibility comes with that. But it's very intriguing and uh, inspirational. And it really motivates you to really want to take you know, great care of your customers and design your business to be the best business around quality control, customer satisfaction, and, and really being at the top of your market. So it's, it's like you can be the architect of all those things, which is very 
unique and empowering and, and, and a lot of work. Yeah, there's so much work. We, I just think it, it perhaps the differentiator is between working for someone and being an entrepreneur is there's so much work you have to, as you said, prioritize because you can't do it all. There's more work to be done than there hours in a day. And maybe you're really putting in a ton of hours, but still you got to sleep, you got to eat. And there's only so many hours you can work. So what, even though you really want to do it, do you have to push aside and not and let it not get done? Now I'm just thinking back to the early days. Don't forget, you know, you, you, you talk about all these glamorous jobs. You didn't mention you got to clean with your own toilets, right? <laughs> we are doing that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's part of the deal, and 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 it's there for a while, even when you have employees. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna have to well, probably clean it more often, but uh, employees will be necessary. <laughs> I, I remember we had it, it's mostly male in this industry, and we had one woman. And the office manager, and essentially she had her own private bathroom, and <laughs> everybody else was sharing the other bathroom. So, <laughs> I'm sure. Wow. Uh, you know, families are a big part of starting up. And Jason, you said you're married. Brian, are are you married? Do you have a family? I'm not married right now. No, not not yet. So, so I'll direct this one to Jason and the reality of startups did you have a conversation with your wife and say listen i'm going to be working a lot of hours and this is uh, what what sort of conversation did you have if you had one yeah we did you know i'm fortunate she's just the better half in every way shape or form you know she's always been on full support of me doing what I want to do and fulfilling my dreams. And, you know, I, I'm not the most uh, risk averse person. I will uh, put myself out there. So she's very patient. I think, you know, I did talk with her and she felt a lot more comfortable with us buying an established business with an established customer stream. You know, fortunately, I was in a position to go do it. That was really made possible by her success in her career. And she's done well and is able to support a household even while I'm out, you know, not, not making money, obviously right now, just starting up. So, so yeah, just very fortunate in that way. The only complicated part was I asked her if we could do it when we were pregnant with twins, we had a two-year-old at home as well. So uh, those twins arrived a few weeks ago and uh, they're doing well. And you know, I would just say that, you know, if it weren't for my wife's staying up with them, feeding them every night, dealing with all of the things that go into that so none of that would be possible and it, it is definitely tough i had a young family when i started rapid matter of fact my son was born a month before we bought the business so it's wow. similar similar situation and there were a lot of evenings where i would go home and have dinner we, we were about 15 minutes away from the shop and then Buck the kids in and come back to the shop or till midnight or, or whatever time it demanded and go home and get up, do it again. But it is super important to have the conversations and to have support. So, yeah, we're, we've you know, been very supportive and I'm fortunate. Uh, we were fortunate to find a place to lease that was really suitable for what we wanted to do 10 minutes from my house. So that certainly makes it um, easier for me than yeah. That's, <laughs> that's huge. Don't, don't discount living close to where you work. <laughs> you may be living at your work. Well, let's get back into the additive. And I, I totally agree with you. I think additive is a complement to machine shops and other shops or the processes, as well as it will not overnight become the way that parts are manufactured. But eventually additive will be a very strong contender for the top three in how parts are made. So many shops, well, some machine shops have a 3D printer in-house now. Certainly everyone's heard of it. Others may be looking at bringing one in-house. Can you walk us through the, in more depth your analysis of the additive market, the 3D printing market, and how you ended up with, sounds like with Mark Forge, 
there's so many different technologies out there. There's so many manufacturers for each technology. Really want to frame this in terms of the listener who says, I have no idea what to buy. Should I buy that half million dollar metal 3D printer? Should I buy a Chinese thousand dollar FDM printer on Amazon? Just I'll just throw it open. Where, where do you start as a shop? And, and maybe you can explain it through your process and where you ended up. I think one of the biggest recommendations I would give to anyone wanting to get into additive manufacturing in any way for their for their business would be to definitely do a lot of thorough research first, like like we've done so far. Don't be in a rush to purchase a printer because there are a lot of OEMs out there and it's not as familiar as traditional manufacturing methods um, and machines to, to many engineers and, and people trying to get into the market. But we did a lot of research. We came across a number of different companies and, and had you know long conversations with sales reps and engineers of those companies. But you know one thing about additive manufacturing because it's it's it's, it's definitely come a long way. But because it's not a fully, I would say, like mainstream process yet, a lot of the price points on the technology and materials can be high for many mm-hmm. people wanting to get into it. And so we, we could have bought machines that were at a really high price point. But one reason we didn't is we really wanted to be competitive in the market. And we wanted to find machines that would deliver tight tolerances and give us a lot of different industrial applications, but at the same time would allow us to, you know, price our parts appropriately compared to also machine parts and, and other manufacturing processes. And there's also, as you mentioned, a number of different technologies and, and 3D printing. And uh, we started with two, you know, fused deposition modeling or FDM printing and selective laser centering or SLS. And we started with those two because we saw that it would enable us to offer quite a few applications. And two, FDM particularly was, has become so much more developed in what it can do. And, and selective laser centering is showing its potential more and more in the you know plastics and metals world, also with direct metal laser centering. So we selected those technologies after a lot of research and also because we found two OEMs that provided us with printers or sold us printers that gave us the best, you know, platforms meeting the, the specifications that I described a moment ago. And that would be Mark Forged and uh, Formlabs, both out of Boston. We also liked that they were American manufacturers of, of printers, but more importantly, we felt like we were getting the right value and the right quality for an initial investment in the space. And another thing that people should look for. So, the, so what's the price point of these printers that you bought? Well, the Mark Forge ones, the industrial printers, they range from about um, you know, like 35,000 on the low end to about 75,000 on the upper end. And the difference in those is the upper end enables you to do a couple of things. One is be able to print with continuous fibers in the parts. And so you can reinforce those parts. And also on the higher end industrial printer, the X7 that we like to use, there's a software called Blacksmith on it, which enables you to do laser inspection and recalibration while the part is being printed. Mm. So you, and it's, it's got artificial intelligence integrated with it. And, and Mark Forge continuously keeps upgrading that platform and software. And you can also deliver quality inspection reports through it. So we were really attracted to that for the industries you work with. And then other printers we have include the you know, X3s, which are on the they're they're on the lower end of the industrial series printers, but they provide the same part accuracy for composite only parts. And we use a material called Onyx, a, a nylon chopped carbon fiber filled material that Mark Forged developed. It's really a great industrial application material. And, and so the, the X3s imprint that with you know within five thousandths of an inch accuracy. And, and have the same build volume as the X7 as well. And we're getting more demand for composite only currently because we do a lot of fixturing and tooling and so forth that it's suitable for. But 
the composites, uh, continuous fibers are becoming more and more popular. And so we're, we're happy we invested in that platform to begin with. And the form labs printer, what was the price point on that, Jason? You know, the complete system for a Fuse One and the SIFT and all that, it was under 50 grand. You know, I think with that system, you don't get a, a very fast laser. Uh, maybe That's an SLF. Yeah, I think it's like only 10 watts. So the laser's not working fast, but they do have really good cool down time in terms of the chambers. And they've just, they've thought out the workflow very well. So for a two person shop like us, it was just very turnkey to work with them. And we, you know, after some powder, you know, design and build prep education, I mean, we've been just, you know, really pleased with the consistency and the part quality coming off that printer. Well, let me throw out a couple other names of 3D systems as a whole suite of products, stereolithography, what some of them are based off of, but they're typically UV cured, but not of interest to you or not of interest to you, you thought to your customer base? No, honestly, it probably is of interest to our customer base. We like making like really tough parts that, you know, people can, you know, just try to destroy and they can't break like really mm. tough parts that, you know, rival aluminum. And I, it's just, I don't know. I, I guess what it, what it comes down to is we just don't find it as cool as the other technologies. I, I mean, at the end of the day, we just, <laughs> that's, part, that's part of being your own boss is yeah. you get to define so, what cool is. <laughs> so not logical or any business. Huh? Yeah. I'm just, again, thinking if I'm an owner listening, why uh, did you look at HP at all? They're making some good inroads in terms of higher volume production plastic. We did not. We have really tried to make a concerted effort to find and support OEMs that are, I think, maximizing value in what they do. And I'm not saying HP isn't maximizing value, but, you know, I, I think one, we weren't interested in really high production at first. We may be down the road. Yeah. We get a lot of attention from these startups. You know, someone like Mark Forge, if there's a, a problem, unfortunately, so far they've taken care of it. And when we were talking to the bigger OEMs, we just didn't get a lot of warm and fuzzies. And it was, you know, it's kind of... Well, that, that, that's a huge point because if you don't have the support and your printer's down, this is your livelihood. It's not a printer that's an adjunct to your primary process. Yeah. Yeah. I think really what we were looking at is like in the FDM world, because that's where we see the cost efficiencies being the greatest in terms of application, mm-hmm. uh, really because that technology is so applicable in terms of lightweighting using thermoplastics and composites in place of traditional metal components. And so we think that's just a good value orientation. Now in the FDM world, you know, you can pay anywhere from, like you mentioned, a couple hundred dollars for an FEM printer to all the way up to, you know, we know OEMs that they go up over three quarters of a million dollars. And what I would say is, is that one, just make sure you understand what you're getting with the technology. There's a lot of printers that cost more money than a Mark Forged X7 that you can you know, the most robust material you can print on it is ABS. You know, that's not a very strong solution and one that's going to serve us much good in terms of doing industrial functional prototyping. And so I think what we saw with Mark Forge was a company that had not over-engineered a composite printer to the point where it was twice the money of what some competitors were trying to get us to buy. And also, you know, some of those big, big companies, really their service plans, you know, you, I mean, you may want, I'm, I'm just candid. So I'll just tell you, it's just, it's kind of, it just seems egregious when you're asked to pay $40,000 up front to get service for an FDM printer. You know, that, the technology is not that new. I, I can't imagine why that would cost someone that much to service. Is it really breaking down that much? I don't know. So, I mean, with someone like Mark Forge, you get even more capability and that service number is, I don't know, less than a quarter of that. So that made the decision pretty easy for us. We have to par- price our parts higher. The more expensive we go, you know, just we have to amortize that cost. Mm-hmm. And so 
I don't know how else we could, we, I don't, I, we, the math just doesn't work for us with some of those larger companies. Well, you're in business to make profit. <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from. Let me ask the question you, you just put forth as a statement that tight tolerances were important. Why are tight tolerances important? Your, your company is called Precision Additive. Why is precision important to you guys? Well, we got into the into this additive manufacturing market because we really were interested in the industrial markets. So we're not really approaching or trying to get into any market for you know printing figurines or artistic things with 3D printing. Those are great and and, and really um, useful for you know the maker world and, and many things. We think it's really cool, but we're very interested in the industrial markets that include aerospace, defense, automotive, electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And we really see 3D printing as a technology, as you said, Jay, has not hit like the, maybe the S curve of growth yet, where it's really like, you know, sitting at the same table as traditional manufacturing methods, but it has the potential to really to sit at that table and be a great resource to accompany traditional manufacturing methods. And, and to get there though, uh, especially in the industrial markets and particularly in something like aerospace and defense, we really need tight tolerances on parts. And so we're doing rapid prototyping, but we really, you know, we want those to be the market of functional rapid prototypes and then ultimately scale that to, you know, small mid-batch production. If 3D printing ever becomes, you know, more viable for even large scale production, that'd be great. But the, the tolerances we need, we, we, even the customers we've talked with so far, it's proven to be true that they really want the tight tolerances. Every customer we've worked with so far really wants could, their tolerance around Could five. you define the tight tolerances that you're getting or that your customers expect? Typically, it, it comes in around that they really expect is around like five thousandths of an inch. Is that inch, inch per inch or total? Five thousandths plus or minus. I'm, I'm not sure. I understand. Well, in the beginning of the 3D printing world, they would sometimes presented tolerance of five thousandths per inch. So if you had a 10 inch part, you could be plus or minus 50 thousandths, which is not equivalent in the machining world, obviously. Yes. Um, so you're, yes. So you're, you're, you're talking the plus or minus five thousandths across any dimension. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've, you know, off of Mark Forge's industrial printers, you know, as far as the X and the Y, I mean, we pulled parts off that as, you know, these are simpler geometries, but I would say like as low as two thou. And then you know, in the Z axis, there's uh, more variability. But yeah, I think, you know, in terms of printers that are available in terms of like bang for your buck and, you know, what we found. The other thing that's tough about 3D printing is, and, you know, it seems like it's a little more transparent in the machining world, but it's hard to find tolerance information and specs on machines. That's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's, yeah, it's, so it's obscured purposely, it seems. Yes, yeah. So that was really hard to do due diligence on that on the front end. It's you know that information, even for someone like Mark Forge, they need to put that on their spec sheets. But it's on like you know page. I don't know. It's on some support page way way in the back of the website. But they'll address you too if you have questions about it. But you know, it's one, I mean, there, it's just engineers are already hesitant about 3D printing. If you have a precision, I mean, you're going to have probably a precision dilemma and a discussion with them in a lot of cases in the industrial world. I have a feeling just because it's just typically not as precise as you're able to get precision machining. It's just a matter of like, does it need to be as precise or not for their application? Right. So I just think we thought it was much more approachable. And also it's getting a more you know precise printer to start with. We were able to take some of the variability out of our process in terms of learning to use those printers. So, I mean, I, I think that's the next thing. I think with any printer we've had from one we did R&D on, a MakerBot, Method X, that was like, you know, a five grand printer to these more expensive ones, we've had to spend time to learn how to use them effectively. Could you just briefly explain why the Z-axis tolerance may vary from an XY tolerance? 
Yeah. So 3D printing parts like we do, these parts are inherently anisotropic. So, you know, with machine parts, you're used to having isotropy or consistent mechanical properties in all three axes where with 3D printing, because it's printing up the Z axis, you inherently have anisotropy. That's a byproduct of the bonding between those layers going up. And also you have that bonding going on. So essentially as you're building this up and you've got all the the chemical bonding going on up the Z axis, substrate upon substrate, you've just got more variability in that dimension. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to have something where, you know, that you can measure two, two thou, three thou and the X, Y, and it's, you know, five or six in the Z. Thanks for clarifying that if someone wasn't familiar with why it might vary. Anything else you want to add about additive manufacturing? I, I, I think we're seeing the development of metal additive manufacturing, and we see its potential over the next you know, 10 years going to 2030 and, and some, you know, some markets really, the whole additive manufacturing market is anticipated to grow by a considerable amount, but some estimates, you know, predict the metal additive manufacturing market to, to grow to as much as 50 billion by 2030. And so we recently started offering direct metal laser centering services by partnering up with some other shops to be able to really go after that market more and I've also done some research on some shops that have really successfully integrated metal additive manufacturing with their uh, machining services, and they'll produce the more complex or, or parts of the more complex geometries on the metal additive machines they have, and then they will cut those parts down on their CNC machines to really get the part to like the, the tightest tolerances that they can. And now even metal additive manufacturing has been proving its, its accuracy and tolerances over time. But one big potential we see as a shop is being able to pair our additive technology with uh, machining capabilities. And so that's something we're really researching now. We've gotten into the, the direct metal laser centering market a little bit, and uh, we're looking forward to that progressing, but also we're really looking forward to having kind of a, a really a hybrid approach as a shop potentially that has even more capabilities by offering machining with the combined with the additive processes we have. Well, that's a great lead into when we were chatting before the podcast, you had some questions for me, some of them relating to machining and I'll grab one and maybe we, we can fire some other ones away, but you had asked about the concept of redundancy. And that's something I thought a lot about at Rapid because I very early on realized that I had one machine or in some cases, one person who could bring down the shop for a period of time if they were not available. And that scared this shit out of me. <laughs> so <laughs> it was actually one of the reasons that I really pushed to grow in the early days was to create redundancies. And when I thought of redundancies, I thought of equipment, but I also thought of people and I thought of facilities in having extra square footage to grow into. And the best example is we would have gone out of business in probably around 2007 or so. We had two lasers in-house and one of them caught on fire. These are at the time, probably three, $400,000 machines. And if we didn't have the second laser, we would have been out of business. And it was a struggle for quite a while until we got a second laser back in. And we bought a demo laser, the floor of one of the manufacturers. And between figuring out what we were gonna buy doing some of the research, do we want to buy the same piece of equipment, which we did quickly, but then locating what was available and dealing with the insurance company. I think it took four months from the date of the fire to get another laser in-house. So you think about a business that's based upon turning parts around in five to seven business days, not being able to do that for four months. Wow. 
Yeah. So, yeah, we don't want that to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one wants it to happen. And, but that's one of the reasons we were forced to charge higher prices because our overhead was higher. And that was a, let's say it was a $300,000 machine and we were a small shop at the time. That adds significantly to your overhead, but it's essential, or at least the way we looked at it, it was essential. It was an insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, so what we're trying, trying to do right now is we want to add some machining capability because we've gotten requests for metal parts mm -hmm. and there's a lot of good production houses here in Colorado, but, and you know, pro good prototype houses as well, but we would like to be able to help this market and try to develop, you know, kind of an orientation similar to rapid where we can provide prototype machine parts in one to three days here locally to you know, hopefully add value for not just OEMs, but job shops that, you know, that's doesn't work well for their workflow or whatever it might be, but they might want to go after the production work later. And so what we're looking at is like everything that we've done with our company basically has to accomplish a few different things. One, it needs to yield precision, obviously, because otherwise mm -hmm. it may not be appropriate. Two, it needs to yield speed. And three, it needs to be as automated as possible. And so for us, we've tried to invest in anything that yields those. I mean, from any of our software packages to the machines we buy, and we're trying to do that same thing here. And we're really trying to see, you know, just on an experimental level, how much we can automate this business and just remain a two-person company, because obviously we, our aspirations go beyond that. But we want to be as, as productive as possible and as cost-effective as possible. And also Colorado is not traditionally a huge manufacturing economy. And so the qualified labor shortage, you know, I like to think we feel perhaps even more so here. And so I would just be curious where you would go first, because what we're trying to like, we think we want to go five axis because we want to use the fastest, most, you know, process expedient solution possible. So we're thinking, okay, with a two-person job, if we're running uh, small, high mix stuff that if we put in, you know, a mill that's capable of handling uh, a lot of different part sizes, you know, put a, a pallet pool on it and all this stuff that on a five axis specifically that we can drive efficiencies even for three axis parts. And so, you know, obviously not coming from the machining world and, you know, I've you know, spent any equipment I've spent my lighting career around has been sheet metal related. So I uh, would just be curious how you would approach this. You know, we're talking to Haas and Tucson here locally about their equipment. You know, how would you be thinking about this? Because, you know, you've, you've done this. A lot of questions in there. Sorry. The, that, no, that's, that's fine. You could take the five axis approach, which is, if I, I like to think of the car industries, which is starting with the Porsche or Mercedes or BMW and, and working your way down to the Kias and other types, or you could, which is what the Japanese automotive companies did is they created economies of scale by starting at the very low end and then constantly adding features and upgrading the capabilities of their car. So that there's both approaches work. My preference is to, you don't have a lot of money. I want as many spindles as possible. And that means three axis. The thought of five axis in my mind is what prototyping scares me because there's a lot of risk. Five axis parts are more complex and if you make a mistake and have to scrap it you've got more hours into it typically and we we at rapid always assumed we were going to have to remake a part so our lead times allowed us to screw up a part and then expedite it internally through the shop mm -hmm. it just makes it much harder to do that with a five axis part if you commit it to a lead time and mess it up we'll the customer accept that lead time you quoted them, which includes remaking a five-axis part. Whereas if you start out by machining the simple parts, 
walk for a few holes in them. I mean, any shop can do it. You can do it on a manual bridge port, but it's a lot simpler and you can run those parts through the shop really fast and remake them really fast. So just probably a philosophy standpoint on how you want to approach it. It's like perceived efficiencies that I was five axis, like, you know, just fewer fixtures, perhaps maybe less tooling. It depends on the types of parts. Perhaps you would query a customer base just to get a sense. You can eliminate setups for sure with a five axis, but if you only are hitting the top and bottom side and maybe one other side, then you probably can fixture it pretty quickly in a three axis. Or you get a put a rotary table, get a fourth axis, and you can do a lot of stuff. Gotcha. So it sounds like you would err on the side of well building redundancy, like you said, through uh, three axis solutions. Well, a three axis machine is going to be a lot less expensive than a five axis. Yeah, we've we've noticed that. Yeah. Okay. And I just want as many spindles as possible. Okay. And again, it's that sort of coming up from the bottom approach. Once you have a base, then for me, then I can add the outliers, whether it's equipment or types of parts or even materials. Gotcha. That's very helpful. For three axis machines, Jay, what are your you know, favorite companies to work with? What do you recommend? I, I'll tell you, we, we use Toss, but I don't know. I, I, I have, haven't looked at machining centers in quite a while. Whichever brand you select, I would say stick with that brand. And I call it the Southwest Airlines model. And part of the reason they are able to turn stuff around and keep their costs low is they only fly 737s. So everyone knows how that machine runs, the training's easier. If you have a machine go down, then you can just pop it into the one next to it. I see a lot of shops where only certain people can run certain brands. And I, well, I want the flexibility, at least in a prototype environment of running, everyone being able to run every machine as much as possible. That's great. What sort of machine size would you be looking at to start with in terms of just, you know, some travels and all that? One thing we're fearful of is, you know, it's... And well, it's the, the VF3, and again, I just, I know Haas, so I'll throw out from the VF3, or no, excuse me, the VF2 well, size. To go any smaller doesn't cost you much less money. And to go bigger, you don't gain a lot of parts that you otherwise wouldn't be able to make. So the VF2 was really, in my eyes, the sweet spot for a general workhorse. But if you really look at the prices don't go down a lot if you take the travel size in half because most of the parts of the machine stay the same. It's just a little less metal. Regarding spindle speed, what, what would you recommend there, Jay? If it's reasonable in price, I think the high speed, I don't think shops always take advantage of the cutting capabilities that you can do now with high speed. The software's gotten so much better. The machines are more rigid and it may make some weird noises, but you can cut parts faster with higher spindle. And a lot of times the cut is better. How high up would you go in terms of the RP? Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what those exact spindle speeds are. Okay. I, I, and that might be a consideration of looking at the CAM software to find out how that would integrate. That's another thing I wanted to ask you. You guys were, you use SolidWorks for CAM at Rapid? Is that, do I have that correct? So SolidWorks was the CAM package. We used MasterCAM and I think it was SolidCAM. Okay. We, we used another package, but the primary package was MasterCam. Okay. That was picked years ago. We standardized on it. I am not sure if it is still, that would be the package that we would choose. What I would go for in a CAM package today is the one that when you talked about automation, once you create templates, it's one of those things. If, if you can produce a CAM program 
in 10 minutes and it runs 20% longer in the machine and your spindle cost is low, so what? You want the, the gating item is going to be somebody to program the parts. You want to automate, you want, whichever cam package now at a reasonable cost automates through templates as much as possible. You put the geometry in and it's doing its thing. That's what I would go with. So I think that also just gave me further insight on your direction to go with three rather than five axis. Five axis is harder to program. It's harder to automate. Well, you, you had talked about how you generate leads as a young shop. And I think you sounds like you're doing all the right things. You're looking at going to a trade show. You're doing emails. You are out on social media. The big thing which I've been pounded into my head, which is different than when I was in business, is the best way to market your shop is through content creation. So lots of case studies, lots of thought leadership out there. So a blog and continuously posting. SolidWorks user groups, if they're still happening, are a great place to meet potential customers. And I would just ask your customers now, what, what websites do they go to? Are the popular industry specific websites that are a pattern? What magazines do they get? It may, since you're Colorado based, may not be a good avenue for you, but are there other industry groups? You're selling a lot to other shops, society of manufacturing engineers. Is that a potential place to do business? COVID certainly created such upheaval in, in meeting face to face, but those events where your customers are going are great places to, to meet and have time to talk with them. That's very helpful. We're going to be going to an AMCON show in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah here soon. You're going to be um, exhibiting? Yes, we are. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually, I'm going to be going to the one in Wichita this next week. What we found, we, you know, with all of our stuff going on launching the business and so forth, we didn't sign up for that um, to be an exhibitor, but I'm going to, to walk the floor and, mm -hmm. um, and also hopefully, you know, meet some people there and mm -hmm. generate some new ideas and also see what's best for our approach for the Amcon show and in, in Utah. But uh, do you have any particular recommendations, Jay, on trade shows that you found particularly helpful for Rapid? I will say the thing that drove me absolutely nuts was seeing the people in the booths having a table between them and the attendees and they were sitting in chairs. So I did not allow chairs in our booths and we only had tables on the side and I stood in the aisle and I had our salespeople stand in the aisle and funnel them into the booth. And I talked with everyone. Now you, you learn to recognize the tags, but if you want purchasing people, know what their tags look like. If you want engineers, know what their tags look like. And you have to have a line, a script, and engage anybody who looks active because once they walk by, they're never going to walk by again and you've lost your opportunity. And the only purpose of a trade show is to get someone's name and contact information. It's not to sell them. You can follow up and sell them. But if you have somebody in your booth for 20 minutes, think about how many people walk by who you'd love to have their contact info. That's a good point. It's a very good point. Somewhat obnoxious at the trade shows, but we probably got more leads than any other booth. And that's what we were there for. That's great. First boss I ever had was very adamant about no one sitting or eating. So a lot in common. You're spending a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. What We spoke with another guest you had on the show, Mush Khan of Alchemy Industrial. Oh, Mush is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a very intelligent individual who was very you know forthcoming with us with helpful information. And one of the things he shared with us was the tremendous value in building our, our email list. Mm -hmm. And, and so he, he said a similar thing about the trade shows where he, he shared with us, the most important thing is to, you know, increase your contact list so you can deliver your content, you know, to them later either through emails and so forth. And so I knew that from some previous jobs I was in, but it, but it, I didn't know it nearly as as well as I do now. After both Mush and you mentioned that is such a high priority, and it's really at the forefront of our mind now. What blew my mind was even towards the end of when I was at Rapid, how many people 
who had used you in the past forgot about you and didn't think of using you unless you put out a regular email blast and were in the front of their mind. And, and once a month is probably as frequently as I would, but at least once a quarter. It is amazing though. You would think that you did a tremendous job for somebody. They would just automatically come back. And the answer is no, they don't automatically come back. You have to keep hitting them over the head. When you sent out those email blasts, would you see like a surge in orders after that? Or Yeah. And that goes back to my first job in 1987 or 88. And when the shop got slow, we didn't have email back then. I would, I had a mail merge program in WordPerfect for anybody out there who's old enough to remember that. And I would print out 500 letters or so and print out labels, put the stamps on them and mail them out. And I would get enough business to keep the shop going again. It's just reminding people that you exist. Yeah. yeah. And you never want to sell the content should always be informative and by association it gives you credibility and desire for the customer to want to do business with you because of your knowledge yeah yeah that's very helpful thank you jay if i can ask one last question we're really attracted to approaching the rapid prototyping market also, because as Jason said, we see a number of you know good production shops and, and also prototyping shops in our area, but we don't see a lot of quick turn rapid prototyping at the level that rapid manufacturing is doing it. And we want to target those markets for both additive 3D printing and, and machining. In your view, as like a, a new shop like us getting started in additive and machining, do you have any recommendations or, or any input on what are the best markets to really be approaching in American manufacturing, contract manufacturing, or specifically also how to approach rapid prototyping best? My ideal customer is an engineer with a credit card. And that just leaves the door wide open. It is so hard to figure out where your next customers are going to come from. And in the prototyping world, you're not going to get a lot of repeat business. It's very clumpy. You cast that net wide and always be selling, always be marketing, even when you're busy. I think that is the mistakes shops make in that they slow down and they stop. We're, we're busy. We've got backlog for the next six months. And been six months, they don't have any backlog. The marketing doesn't turn on immediately. It's like a flywheel. It takes a while to ramp up. And once you're doing it, it's easy to maintain it. And the beauty of it is that if you get too much business, the way to filter business is by raising prices, which is a good thing. Yes. In, in your experience, I guess with both rapid manufacturing um, and now paperless parts. How, how long did it take you to get the, the flywheel turning? Well, I had a great mentor and I wanted to go out and become a manufacturer's rep in 96. And he said, Jay, you don't know enough people, you'll starve. And he was right. So I went and I worked for what at the time was called the Sterilophography Service Bureau. And I built up that contact list while I was working for someone else. And when I went out and became a rep, I just switched from doing emails for the sh that shop to emails for my rep services. And when I started Rapid, I had a contact list that I immediately was able to generate quoting opportunities. That is the goal, is your contact list. And that's what I was talking about being at the trade show. You, that's the way you build it. Okay. It's very helpful. Thank you. Any other questions? I think, yeah, I got one more for you. How do you think about, you know, just so much of your business was based on speed and are there things that have, well, I guess develop, I, well, I guess it's specifically what it relates, my question relates to is qualified labor shortages. 
what were some strategies that you employed to try to overcome that? And I'm just thinking ahead as we bring on employees. And the same, try to- it's the same, same as sales and marketing, always be hiring. We sometimes were opportunistic if someone came, we weren't hiring for that, for a role, but someone came along whose skill set was just so good that we brought them on board and figured out how to make best use of them. When you want or need to hire someone and you haven't been doing it, it takes a while to ramp up and it may take three, four plus months to get them in house. If you are always advertising, talking to potential folks, you know, we'd love your qualifications. We'd love to bring you on board. We're probably looking at three to six months. Some people will be so excited about additive manufacturing. They'll wait in the wings. So I'll always be hiring. Very good. Well, that shows with the, the team you've assembled at Paperless. Yeah, I just think for us, you know, this podcast has been tremendously valuable in so many ways to us. And I, I just think you're doing a tremendous service to small American manufacturers and getting their thoughts and your thoughts out in the ether. You know, it's, it's just been uh, tremendously helpful and I think has saved us money already and, you know, saved us going down some bad paths. So, Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad it's, it's helpful for you. And now you're yeah. part of it. Your experiences and your shares here are going to be disseminated to other shop owners and they'll hopefully be able to pick up pieces that will help them save time, money, or avoid making mistakes. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an incredible resource. We listen to it continuously to give us new ideas and inspiration. Yeah, if there's any shops listening that are thinking about getting into additive or whatever, we're an open book. Um, if you're local, you're welcome to stop over and see what we have going on here. Well, if they are in the Boston area, say, and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you guys? They can easily get a hold of us by contacting our direct phone number at Precision Additive. It's, it's 888-909-7900. They can also contact us through email. You know, best way is probably just to contact either one of us. My name, mine is Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at precisionadditive.com. Or you can contact Jason, which is just Jason at precisionadditive.com. Great. Well, thanks, guys. It was wonderful having you on. And listeners, my belief is that every shop should have a 3D printer. Buy one today. Well, perhaps not today, do some research, find out what's best for you, but get a 3D printer. Budget some money for materials and time for your try. Budget some money for materials and time for your team to try things, experiment, maybe a new way of making a fixture, printing out a complex part so the programmer can have it in their hand while they're figuring out how the machine, what their machining approach is. Just experiment, see where it goes acknowledge you'll have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prints. Till next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and those 3D printers printing. Have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.